The last time we spoke about the vast history of Asia from around the 15th century all the way up to the 19th century. I imagine it was a bit grueling, as you literally required a set of maps to follow along as I told the brutally summarized versions of multiple East Asian nation histories. Today, things will be quite different. You can probably put those maps away. The main subject we are about to talk about is quite honestly impossible to summarize. Now before we explore this subject I have yet to name, let me tell you how one of my professors went about teaching this. He basically told us to think about this event in terms of the Renaissance that was seen in Italy, and to learn about it, it would require knowledge of just about every facet that makes up a society. What we're about to talk about is called the Meiji Restoration. It is one of the greatest social changes to occur in human history, a truly fascinating event that leaves you quite humbled. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week. I am your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we start, I want to also remind you, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about Japanese history? I recommend their episodes on The Japanese Warrior Woman or The Battle of Tushima, one of my personal favorites. Of course, they have a wider collection of episodes on many historical events, so go give them a look over on YouTube. And please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue helping us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And if you're still hungry for some more history-related content, why don't you go over to my channel, the Pacific War Channel, where you can find a few videos like my episode on the Meiji Restoration or the Boshin War. Go give it a look. It would mean a lot to my small channel. Oh, and by the way, for those of you who are interested in learning more about the subjects we are about to speak about, I have to recommend one book in particular. It's honestly a staple when it comes to the history of Japan. It is known as The Making of Modern Japan by Marius Jansen. Honestly, can't recommend it enough. Give it a check. This episode will be on the Meiji Restoration. Japan during the first half of the 19th century was an agrarian country. We are talking about tens of millions of rice farmers. There was also a small minority of merchants and skilled craftsmen. And of course, there was the famous samurai, who were the elites of the society. Sometimes it's easier for Westerners to think of them as knights in a feudal society. I think it's best here to try and explain the society that was Tokugawa, Japan, known also as the Edo period. Tokugawa Japan is run by the Tokugawa shogunate with the shogun on top, something of a generalissimo who rules domains also known as hands, which are ruled by the daimyo. Think of daimyo as samurai governor generals, one for every hand, of which there is a ton. Now the shogun is part of the Tokugawa family who has ruled since 1603. Yes, a very impressive dynasty. What is also impressive is how the Tokugawa's methods of control have led to a relative peace over Japan until the 19th century. Edo Japan has had a stringent caste system. The caste system is built off of ancient Chinese and Confucian models of the four divisions of society called Shino Kosho. Please do forgive me if I mispronounce any of these terms. It can be quite difficult at times, but I am trying. So for Shino Kosho, the Shi refers to the samurai, No for the farmers, Ko for the artisans, and Sho for the merchants. There are actually other members of the caste system, such as the Burakumen, Think of the untouchables of India, if you know that caste system. It is quite similar. Basically, these are people who did jobs that in Japanese society were seen as unclean. We are talking about executioners, undertakers, slaughterhouse workers, and tanners. Jobs involving, you know, touching dead things were deemed tainted by death, and thus, this class was 
ostracized and forced to live in isolated hamlets. Now amongst the four classes, the merchant class was despised. Merchants were at the bottom of the caste system because they did not produce any goods, they merely traded. Yet as the 19th century emerged, there was a significant shift in Japanese society. So as we said, we have the shogun, who is something of a generalissimo over Japan, and he has the daimyos, who ruled their respective hands under him. These daimyo were paid in koku. Koku is a measurement of rice, required to feed one person each year. The daimyos were given a certain amount of koku, and they distributed it to their respective samurai. Even inside the samurai class, there was levels as well. So depending on your status as a samurai, you were given a certain stipend of koku. Now this is all fine and dandy, but when the 19th century came around, the long-time peace led to the erosion of the samurai class, who was more often than not being put into administrative positions or found themselves receiving less and less koku. In order to make ends meet, the samurai, particularly low-ranking ones, took loans from the merchant classes in order to survive. This got to a point where merchants were lending enormous amounts of money to samurais and even daimyos. As you can imagine, this led to many merchants having an extremely large influence on these daimyo and samurai. This also led to the shogun's treasury falling apart and major inflation hit the country. With so many samurai and daimyo with questionable loyalties running amok, Tokugawa Japan was ripe for full-scale insurrection there was a lot of discontent. Now Japan's internal problems were not all that she faced during this time period. Since 1633, Japan enacted an isolationist policy called Sakoku. It loosely translates to closed country. This policy would reign for over 214 years where no one was allowed to leave Japan and only a few select people could come to Japan via a man-made island named Tujima which we explained in the previous episode. Now this did not stop the outside world from peering in, as you can imagine. At the start of the 19th century, Russian explorers arrived in the Sakhalin Islands and the Kuril Islands as they were hunting whales and beginning to trade with the Ainu people. The Ainu people are sort of like the aboriginals in America. They lived in northern islands of Japan. Marius Jansen makes one interesting note and that's how the Japanese first viewed the Russians showing up. It is as follows, quote, Japan's concern with the northern borders naturally led to ideas about the defense of Izo, interest in the Russians described as red-haired Ainu. End of quote. So as you can see, the Japanese viewed these northern aboriginal Ainu people quite differently from themselves, and they have a fascinating history that we really can't dwell into too much. But if you would like to learn more about the Ainu people, can I perhaps recommend checking out Kings and Generals episode on them? It's very well done, and I quite love the artwork. Anyways, alongside the Russians showing up, British gunboats emerged and threatened to attack Nagasaki at one point. Other nations tried to demand for trade, and the shogunate, well, they freaked out to say the least. In 1825, the shogun ordered any foreign ships that showed up to be forcefully expelled. Meanwhile, the United States was expanding its presence in the Pacific, and a few of its whalers found themselves shipwrecked in Japan, and they were unfortunately killed. The United States sent a number of proposals to the shogunate to resolve this matter and to open commercial relations, but each were refused. Well, enough was enough, and the United States sent Commodore Matthew Perry to Japan in 1853 to enforce trade with the United States. The Japanese population was alarmed, and the shogun Tokugawa Ioyoshi, knowing that war was futile, sought a compromise. You see, like I mentioned in the last episode, a major reason the Japanese continued to allow the Dutch to trade at Dujima was not for material gains, but rather the annual obtaining of news for what was going on in the world. At this time, China had lost the First Opium War of 1839 to 1842 and was about to undergo a second one. 
The Japanese always had this sort of little brother, big brother relationship with China, and seeing big brother getting quite literally torn apart by Westerners, well, that freaked out the ruling class of Japan, to say the least. They saw how large these Western ships were, dwarfing their own, and they heard how few Westerners it took to bring down the Manchu armies in China. Thus, the Shogun and his advisors had two options. Try to expel the foreigners, which they knew was a doomed cause at this time, or open up the country. Well, they chose the latter, notably after many, many heated debates. The Americans succeeded in opening trade with the Japanese, and soon the Western powers pressed their advantage in a series of commercial treaties which became known notoriously as the Unequal Treaties in Japan. Now remember, the Tokugawa rulers of Japan signed these treaties trying to avoid war, as they knew they would lose and potentially become victims to colonization. Signing these treaties and allowing foreign barbarians into Japan obviously did not go well with the vast majority of the people in Japan. This led to a movement called Sonojoi, which translates to revere the emperor, expel the barbarians. What followed this was groups of daimyo and samurai attacking foreign traders and sometimes shogunate officials as well. A famous event happened in Kagoshima, of Satsuma Domain, where the Royal Navy bombarded them in retaliation for Satsuma leading attacks made on British traders in Japan. The Satsuma forces tried to fight them off, but seven Royal Navy steam warships devastated Kagoshima, took down like 5% of Kagoshima's urban area, something like 500 houses. What is interesting to note is when the Satsuma began negotiations with the British, they agreed to pay indemnities for the British killed, but then asked them for trade. You see, these Sonojoi sympathizers were so impressed with the Western weaponry, they asked if they could trade to get their hands on some of it. This little minor conflict had started a secret relationship between Satsuma Domain and the British, who would go on to trade some very nice firearms and more importantly, some very modern artillery pieces. Note this, because it's really going to make a splash later. What we get now is an interesting divergence in Japan. Two factions have emerged. The first is a pro-Tokugawa shogunate faction, led by the Tokugawa family and their allies, these being mostly northern hands in Japan. The second faction is, as we mentioned, the Sonojoi faction, who sought to get rid of the shogun and shogunate system, restore power to Emperor Komei, and they were led mostly by southern hands. The Tokugawa shogunate, seeing the paint on the wall, hired foreign military assistance from France in 1868, and 17 French military advisors helped them train a new modern shogunal military. The most famous of these advisors was Jules Burnett, the inspiration for Tom Cruise's character in the film The Last Samurai, Yes, I just made that reference. It's a great movie. Historically, very inaccurate, but it's, you know, a guilty pleasure. So the Shogun had a French-trained military, and he bought some new steam warships. The Shogun also happened to have the loyalty of the legendary Shinsengumi. Think of them as an elite samurai force that sort of polices Tokyo. Now you might be asking, okay, this is the Shogunal forces, so who are the other guys? Remember Satsuma Domain? Well, Satsuma Domain and their rival domain, Choishu, have secretly been trading with those like the British for firearms, and more specifically, Armstrong field guns. Sort of the state-of-the-art artillery, so to say. What would occur is a very intense civil war known as the Boshin War of 1868-1869. to Tokugawa Yoshinobu would step down as shogun to try and appease the rebels, but the war continued as the shogunal forces sought defeat after defeat. If you want a sense of what this war looked like, by the way, look up the Battle of Toba Fushimi, an extremely interesting event that kicked off most of the major fighting. 
We are talking about samurai wielding katanas with an assortment of many different firearms from different nations, a few gatling guns, and the real winner of the war was the artillery pieces, particularly Armstrong field guns. The shogunal forces are eventually pushed into northern Japan, where they make this famous last stand at the Battle of Hakodate. Hell, they even tried to form a new government based on the United States for a brief time. It's a crazy affair. If you want to know more, well, you could always go to my Pacific War channel, as I covered the entire war in detail. It's a very interesting episode, a lot of samurai movie footage used. What can I say? I love the classic Chanbara films. Sorry for shilling so much in this episode, but upon writing this podcast, I realized that almost 80% of my YouTube channel covers subjects that are presented in this very episode. So if you'd be interested in learning more about the Boshin War, go check it out. It's honestly quite a entertaining one. So in the end, the rebels win. Emperor Komei had died during the process, but now Emperor Meiji has been put on the throne. And thus, the new era will be called the Meiji era. It's also interesting to note, Meiji means enlightened rule. So not bad for an era name. Now, the rebels sought Sono Joy, so you would assume they would continue their struggle to expel the barbarians. But no, this was immediately forgotten, and most realized early on that it was simply impossible at this time. Emperor Meiji would quickly go on to issue a series of reforms, increasing the opportunities for commoners, abolishing the system class, transforming the feudal domains into prefectures, renaming the capital of Edo to Tokyo, and centralizing the government in a quasi-oligarchy. Now here is where I would like to start getting into the nitty-gritty of the Meiji Restoration. Basically, much like the Renaissance, this was a change of all aspects of society. However, unlike the Renaissance, the Meiji Restoration was extremely rapid, and for good reason. You see, when Japan was forcefully opened, they understood and feared colonization. Hell, most of Asia was being colonized at this time by the British and French empires. Thus, the Japanese intellectuals decided the best way to avoid falling victim to colonization was, well, to become a great power like those doing the colonizing. So what is the first thing a nation needs to become a great power in the 19th century? Japan never had a written constitution, and to be honest, the Japanese were quite terrified of full-blown democracy. Japan sent a legendary diplomatic voyage to the West back in 1871 to 1873 called the Iwakura Mission. The purpose of this venture was to learn all aspects of society from the great powers in the West and at the same time try to earn recognition from the West for the great advancements made in Japan. From what they learnt of the great powers, for a political model they saw the United States Constitution being far too liberal. France and Spain's models were far too draconian and absolute in power. Britain's Westminster system seemed too unwieldy and granted far too much power to Parliament for their liking, but the Reichstag and legal structures of Germany, more specifically of Prussia, now that seemed just right to the Japanese rulers. So they formed a cabinet in 1885 headed by Ito Hirobumi as the first Prime Minister and they hired countless foreign advisors, quite a lot of German ones, to come help build their political model. Japan sought to balance the sovereign power of the emperor with an elected legislature that could have some limited power when needed. In 1889, the Meiji Constitution was created. It stated the emperor of Japan to be the supreme leader, better called the head of state, while the prime minister was the actual head of government. What is interesting is the constitution held that sovereignty resided in the person of the emperor rather than in the people. The emperor also had the right to exercise his executive authority to appoint and dismiss all government officials. And thus here we find one of the most important issues that will come up later during the Pacific War. The constitution states the emperor commands the army and navy. Sure, that seems logical, right? So what if the army and the navy interpret this to mean they only obey the emperor? Well, that should not be a problem, right? I mean, the emperor will command the military then as he sees fit. Well, 
what if the emperor does not give commands? You see this sometimes in history in regards to rulers with dictatorial powers. In the hands of a strong leader, well, a nation or an empire can do quite well. What happens if you get, let's say, a weaker leader? We won't dwell too deeply into this here, but let's just say, for a lot of complicated reasons in the future, Emperor Hirohito would often take a back seat when given the chance to exercise executive powers. Sometimes he would use them, and you would be very surprised how often and for what reasons he would do so. One thing is certain, he did not stop the Pacific War when he really should have, but this will be explained in much further episodes. Anyways, alongside the constitution and the new system of government was the education system, which was revamped and was heavily influenced by America, Prussia, and Germany. Much like today, there was to be primary and secondary schools as well as university. The success of the education system is honestly quite incredible. By 1912, something like 98% of children in Japan were being educated. The Meiji leaders even had a slogan for the education system. It was, there shall be no community with an unschooled family and no family with an unschooled person. At first, the education was driven purely to prepare students for their economic or political roles in the new industrialized Japan. Yet, as many of you probably know, later on, the education system would be directed almost exclusively towards the military profession. The model for education was built on two main principles. The first one was to acquire knowledge from the modern world, i.e. the best knowledge of the strongest nations. The second was Foucault, which translates to restore antiquity. This probably sounds a bit confusing, but what they sought was a balance between taking the very best they found from modern world powers, but at the same time adjusting it to fit the traditional culture of Japan, particularly in regards to Shinto. Marius Jensen quotes a famous debate in 1876 between the legendary figures Mori Aranori, a Japanese intellectual who was in charge of the emerging Japanese education system, and Li Hongzhang, one of the most famous figures from the Qing dynasty. So these two men were having a meeting in 1876, and Marius Jensen describes it as such, quote, Li, looking disdainfully at Mori's western suit, asked if Mori's Japanese ancestors had dressed that way. No, Mori had replied, they had adopted Chinese dress, but it was no longer practical. Japan had always taken the best of other civilizations for itself, and it was doing so once more. He then went on to remind Li that Li's ancestors had not worn the official robes prescribed by China's Manchu conquerors either. Japan, by inference, had at least made its own choice. I really do love this story. As you can see, it sort of symbolizes what Japan is doing. While they look and take from the West, they only take what is of use to them, while trying to retain their own culture. It's vastly more complicated than just this, but I always found this story helped gauge a little of what is going on, because if you look at photos or paintings of the time period, it's hard not to just assume that Japanese are becoming westernized. You can look it up right now. Any Meiji period photos, you might see Japanese in top hats and tuxedos performing ballroom dancing, yet things like this were done specifically to get the Western world to view the Japanese in such a way that they wouldn't colonize them. Quite intelligent, might I add. There were a few occasions the royal family of Japan invited all the great powers leaders to these sort of events to show off just how Western or civilized they were, and you know what, it worked. Now the education system, military, and economy developed under the term Fokuku Keoe, which translates to enrich the country and strengthen the army. Fukuko Keoe, by the way, is also the official Meiji slogan and central objective. In the early Meiji years, 70% of the population was involved in farming, forestry, and fishing, and this accounted for 60% of the national output. Japan soon began to increase its textiles, particularly with silk. By the 1890s, Japan's textile work began to dominate its home market, overthrowing the British and Chinese and Indian textile work that would strangling them. 
Japan then began to export to other Asian nations. The Industrial Revolution that took place in Japan was some of the most rapid and intense seen in human history. The government managed this by embracing the capitalistic system and allowing the private sector to aggressively grow. But what was unique to Japan was its government backing of certain conglomerates, the zaibatsu as they were known. These were large private companies, or sometimes better described as financial cliques, which worked hand in hand with the government to aggressively push technological and economic advances. When I say worked hand in hand, I also mean they were very much the core of Japan's economy and held enormous influence over the empire. To give you an idea, the four big zaibatsu, Mitsubishi, Sumitomo, Yusada, and Mitsue controlled 30% of Japan's mining, chemical, metals industries, and almost 50% of the machinery and equipment market, and 70% of commercial stock exchange. So yeah, pretty big. The Japanese population working in agriculture went from 75% in 1872 to 50% by 1920. Raw silk export went from 646 tons in 1872 to 9,462 tons by 1915. The Japanese merchant fleet was like 26 ships in 1873, and it became 1,514 ships by 1913. Wow. Oh, and don't forget, much like any developing nation, this was done on the backs of laborers who suffered tremendously. Japan miners, for example, lived in barracks and worked 12-hour shifts for very little pay and usually under the presence of guards. Oh boy, after all the economics and education system, I know what you all want to hear. You want to hear about the military advance. It should come to no surprise, the military advance based on Western models. Like I said, they were taking the best aspects of the outside world after all. Now as we mentioned before, Tokugawa Japan had hired French military advisors to train their forces way back in 1868. When Meiji assumed power, he continued this venture. However, since 1873, there was a conscription law passed requiring every able-bodied Japanese male, regardless of former social class, to serve mandatory three years of military service. In conjunction with the new law, the military forces were modeled on the French military using the same rank structures. France sent 18 personnel to train 11,000 infantry of the Shogunate, as we had said before. However, something had changed. The Franco-Prussian War of 1871 saw the rise of Prussia, and the Meiji military decided to abandon the French model and switch to the Prussian model. In 1878, Chief of the Army General Staff, Yamagata Aritomo, pushed the military to officially adopt the German military system. Now the IJA would adopt a crucial part that made the Prussian-German model so effective, the division of the army into two chains of command, administrative, and operational. In 1872, the military had divided itself into the army and navy. The navy modeled itself after the British, but the French played a minor role influencing Japanese naval doctrine to favor small fast warships such as cruisers and torpedo boats against larger units. By 1882, the Meiji government began building over 48 warships. Now most of this was very welcomed by top-ranking officials, notably made up of the former Satsuma and Choshu rebel leaders that won the Boshin War. You see, the modernization of the military was necessary, and they all understood this. However, there was unforeseen outcomes as well. The social class system, as we mentioned, was abolished. Everyone, quote-unquote, was equal. This meant a class like, let's say, the samurai, lost all of their special privileges. What sort of special privileges, you might be asking? How about the sole right to bear arms? Because of course, commoners were forbidden from ever having arms. The right to wear top-knot hairstyles, a symbol of status. To be the only ones serving in the military. Oh, and one other little privilege, the right to kill any commoner who might dishonor you. They lost all of these privileges, and now the commoners were filling the military role that they formerly had a monopoly over. The former samurai class found themselves in a new world where everyone was equal. Many found jobs in business, administration, and most notably, the new military. However, not all samurai could 
keep up with the times. Many fell into poverty, unemployment, and really without a purpose. The leader of Setsuma Domain, Saigo Takamori, who helped usher in the new era and did support the vast majority of its military reforms, was gravely concerned with the fate of these disenfranchised former samurai who he saw as being left behind. Saigo Takamori voiced his concerns multiple times, and then a legendary debate occurred. In 1869, a goodwill mission was sent to Korea to establish new trade and diplomatic relations containing the seal of the new Meiji Emperor using the character Ko rather than Taekun, which the Koreans reserved only for the Chinese Emperor. You see, this was done to imply that Korea was a vassal to China, and now Japan had perhaps accidentally or intentionally implied the very same vassal relationship upon them. Korea wished to remain in the Sino-centric world and refused to receive the Japanese envoys, well, insulting Japan. So in 1873, the legendary Sea Canron debate began over Korea not recognizing the Japanese emperor. Saigo Takamori and his supporters insisted Japan confront Korea with a military expedition. Saigo volunteered himself to go to Korea as a special envoy where he would act like a drunk asshole to piss off the Koreans so much they would try to assassinate him, giving Japan a legitimate reason to attack. Saigo Takamori was, quite frankly, a badass. Saigo was so determined to have the expedition because he saw it as a way to provide income to the unemployed samurai, and perhaps they could even occupy Korea much like the daimyo had occupied their former hands in the old days. You see, in Saigo's mind, he thought a lot of these disenfranchised samurai had failed to function in the new world, and if they simply sent all these samurai to occupy Korea and form some kind of old Tokugawa system over there, well, they would all be happy. The other Meiji leaders rejected this, however, understanding Japan was in the midst of rapid modernization and could not afford this all at the time. This became the last straw for Saigo Takamori, who promptly resigned from his government position in protest and returned home to Kagoshima in a quasi-retirement. What became of this event is the legendary Satsuma Rebellion. Long story short, Saigo Takamori began to take all the disenfranchised former samurai and opened up military academies to train them and give them purpose again. At these academies, the former samurai were allowed to wear their top knots, carry their swords again, and learn modern warfare tactics and weaponry, with a particular emphasis on artillery. These academies exploded in Satsuma domain, expanding like wildfire, and this meant Saigo had accidentally created an entire paramilitary. The Meiji government was rightfully wary of this and began to send spies to see what was up. Spies were eventually caught and interrogated, and allegedly one said that they were sent to assassinate Saigo Takamori. Thus all these academy forces came to Saigo Takamori, demanding he rebel against the Meiji government, whom they saw as being corrupt. Saigo rose up, proclaiming he would march on Tokyo to, quote, question the government. You see, Saigo made it very clear he was loyal to the emperor. Hell, he wore his official military uniform the entire time of the Satsuma Rebellion. Saigo Takamori wanted it to be clear that the rebellion was against the corrupt government officials and not the emperor. The Satsuma rebels made a heroic fight and fought two large battles, the siege of Kumamoto Castle and the Battle of Taburazaka, but saw defeat after defeat from a much more numerous and better armed imperial force. Then the remaining survivors and Saigo Takamori made a suicidal last stand on Mount Shiroyama. Saigo ended up committing seppuku after getting injured by a gunshot, and his last 500 samurai followers charged the Imperials in a blaze of glory, each dying to the man. To say this last stand was epic is honestly an understatement. It's probably one of the most romanticized battles in Japanese history. If you really want to know more about this event, then please go over on YouTube and check out my channel, the Pacific War Channel. I made an entire episode dedicated to this event. And I must say, it's an incredible event, to say the least. I accompanied it with using cinematic footage from two different movies, and I say it really gives it a great flavor. It's worth a watch, and it would help out my very small channel. 
Anyways, back to the episode. Now the Imperial forces quickly realized after putting down the samurai, well, the public really didn't like that. In fact, it backfired. Saigo Takamori was seen as a martyr and the Japanese public deeply felt that they had lost part of their culture with him. In fact, the backlash was so bad, Emperor Meiji posthumously pardoned Saigo Takamori in 1889 and a statue was dedicated to him in Uno Park of Tokyo. Saigo Takamori is famously known as the last true samurai. What is interesting about the technical fall of the samurai during the Satsuma Rebellion is it had a long-lasting effect on the future imperial military of Japan, all the way up to World War II. Now despite the triumph of the modern military force made up of commoners over the samurai of Satsuma, dispelling any doubts over their efficiency, the people needed to retain some aspect of their older ways. Thus the military gradually adopted Bushido-like codes of conduct and this furthermore found its way into all aspects of Japanese society. In other words, it's as if the old values only invested in the samurai had now come to everybody else in Japan. But many of those listening probably know this had very brutal implications for the military. To be very blunt, a more bastardized version of Bushido would emerge and wreak its ugly head during World War II. The Imperial Japanese military got a taste of war when they put down the Satsuma Rebellion, but prior to this, the military did have another minor expedition against a foreign adversary. In 1874, a Ryukyuan vessel shipwrecked on the southern tip of what is today Taiwan, which was then the colony of the Qing Dynasty. 54 of its crew members were beheaded by aborigines of Taiwan, and 12 remaining survivors were only rescued later by Qing officials who eventually got them back to Japan. Japan immediately demanded justice for what had occurred, but the Qing officials waved it off stating it was done by aboriginals and thus not the fault of the Qing dynasty itself. Thus, the Imperial Japanese army and navy set off to perform a punitive expedition on Taiwan with over 3,600 men. This turned into a real shit show. The Japanese sent men into the interior of the island only to be ambushed by aboriginals. Of course, with their modern firearms, they killed quite a few of them, almost a hundred to be estimated, while receiving light casualties, something like 12 dead and 30 wounded. But here is the good part. Over 561 Japanese soldiers died of an outbreak of malaria during all of this. Now despite this really embarrassing catastrophe, the Japanese claimed that they had exacted justice, and managed to get the Qing government to agree to pay an indemnity fee of 500 cupling tails of silver for the entire ordeal. In fact, Sir Harry Parks, the British minister to Japan, said of this payment, quote, it was China's willingness to pay to be invaded, end of quote. And quite frankly, Sir Harry Parks put, you know, the gist of it. And please note, this experience the Japanese had with malaria would be a crucial aspect to the future Pacific War, specifically in regards to the occupation and fighting among the islands in the Pacific. A year later, Japan ended up signing the Treaty of St. Petersburg with Russia, in which Japan ceded South Sakhalin Island in exchange for the Kuril Islands that Russia controlled. So give a little, take a little. After that, the Japanese would also go on to colonize the Ogasawara Islands in 1875, the Volcano Islands, including Iwo Jima in 1889, and the Minimani Torishima Island in 1898. So as you can see, the Japanese quickly got involved in expanding their empire at the offset of being opened up. By the 1890s, Japan had grown to be the most modern military in Asia. Tensions grew between Japan and the Qing Dynasty because of the Taiwan affair, and soon over Korea. You see, Korea was the vassal to the Qing Dynasty, and being a vassal meant almost all of its economy was intertwined with China. Now Japan wanted to open up Korea's market to, well exploit them honestly. Now, Japan and China for years had made major efforts at diplomacy over the sphere of influence over Korea. However, some coup d'etats occurred and it really looked like Japan was trying to make a puppet state out of Korea. It's a lot more complicated than just that, but I would have to spend the entire episode to try and explain how the Joseon dynasty found itself being fought over by China and Japan. And much like a broken record, if you'd really like to learn more about this event, go over to my YouTube channel where I have a two-part series on the First Sino-Japanese War. 
It even has animated ship battles, but nothing like you would see from Kings and Generals. I am not a gifted animator. I am just a humble smell channel. So in 1894, a major revolt occurred in Korea called the Donghak Revolt. It basically was over a brutal governor who was unfairly overtaxing peasants, whom in return rose up against the government. The Qing dynasty intervened to help the Korean government, but at the same time, so did the Japanese. Soon the Japanese occupied Seoul, capturing King Gojong, and tried to establish a pro-Japanese government that would break their ties with China. China obviously did not like this and sent their army to stop them. Thus started the First Sino-Japanese War of 1894 to 1895. Now understand, at this time, the Qing Dynasty had an overwhelmingly larger navy called the Biang Fleet. However, this fleet, which the Japanese rightfully feared, had some major problems. While the Chinese had some especially large German-built battleships like the Xinyuan and Xinyuan, which the Japanese had no counterparts, as at this time they only had a few cruisers, many of these Chinese ships were actually quite obsolete. Remember when I mentioned the Japanese learnt from both Britain and France how to build their navy? Well, the French emphasized a certain doctrine known as the Jeune-École Doctrine. This favored smaller, fast warships, particularly cruisers and torpedo boats, with offensive capability to destroy larger ships, such as battleships. The idea was to compensate for the lack of size and armor, to outfit your ships with strong and fast-firing guns. The French did this specifically to counter the British. While the Japanese could not afford large battleships at this time, so they did the same thing to the Chinese. Most of the Chinese crews were also not as well trained as the Japanese, and this greatly affected their capability at firing accurately, or quickly for that matter. Put on top of this, the worst problem they faced, that being corruption within their own government, which led to most of their ammunition being of poor quality or non-existent. As Professor William Lockwood said, quote, The cost of the corruption saw some ordnance department regularly filling shells with sand, and when the shooting began, the Chinese fleet found that its total supply of ammunitions amounted to 14 shells per gun. Two 7,000-ton ironclads had only three shells in all for their 10-inch guns. End of quote. I once heard from a Chinese friend that a myth was that some shells taken out of the boxes were literally made out of cement. The IGN had to overcome the larger size and apparent capability of the Biang fleet by using better tactics. At the Battle of Yalu River, the IGN decimated the Biang fleet by allowing the Chinese to fire first from distances they could not hope to hit the IGN vessels from, and then the IGN came in fast and close to fire upon the Chinese ships before the Chinese could even return fire. During the land battles, the Japanese were heavily outnumbered, but the Chinese had very apparent problems with their military, two of the largest issues being corruption again and the lack of standardization. Standardization might sound weird, but what happened was that the Chinese had a vast array of differing firearms, all with different ammunition, which made a logistical nightmare to say the least. The IGA, on the other hand, had standard rifles, same ammunition for all of them, and were trained to properly use the same weapons. During the war, the Chinese had something like 600,000 soldiers versus the IGA's almost 250,000. The Chinese took around 35,000 casualties, while the IGA received around 16,000 casualties. Yikes. During the end of the war, the Japanese attacked the port city of Weiwei, where the remnants of the Biang fleet were anchored. They took the major port city and fired upon the fleet with the very guns that were there to protect it, forcing the Qing dynasty to surrender. Honestly, this entire war is a fascinating one, largely due to the corruption of the Qing officials, might I add. The result of this war saw the Treaty of Shimonoseki signed and the Japanese Empire annex the Liaodong Peninsula, Taiwan, and China had to acknowledge the total independence of Korea, leaving it strongly in the hands of the Japanese sphere of influence. Yet this also is where Japan would find its first major grievance, and many more to come. Russia, France, and Germany suddenly told Japan it could not take the Liandong Peninsula because it put too much pressure on the Qing dynasty. Known as the Triple Intervention, Japan was strongly advised, in reality forced to relinquish the Liandong Peninsula. Guess what happened next? Suddenly, the Liandong Peninsula was leased to the Russian Empire, who required a warm water port in the Pacific. 
Then, the Russians began building a railway to link up Port Arthur in the Liandong Peninsula to the Manchurian Railway. So after fighting a war to get China out of Korea, now Russia had emerged to take her place. Japan bit its tongue at this and invested a lot more money into its navy. Then in 1900, a major event known as the Boxer Rebellion occurred, and my god, I literally have an episode for every single event that I'm speaking about in this podcast. I do apologize, but if you want to hear about this event in much more detail, over at my Pacific War channel, I did an entire episode on the Boxer Rebellion. Anyways, the Boxer Rebellion is uh, its bizarre and quite complicated, but what you need to know for the overall story is that eight great powers had to work together to quell the rebellion in China. Out of these eight great nations were both Russia and Japan, and Russia took the opportunity to throw 177,000 soldiers into Manchuria under the guise it was protecting its railways, and this deeply concerned Japan as you can imagine. You have to understand, Manchuria is something like a giant prize. Everyone wants it in the region. Japan sees Manchuria as the most important region to occupy in order to secure its home islands and gain valuable resources. So after the Boxer Rebellion, the Russians promise they will remove the soldiers that are protecting the railways, and well, they don't. In fact, they leave over 100,000 there. This doesn't just bother Japan, by the way. It bothers Britain also, who signed a lease over Wei Highway and is wary of the Russian presence in the region. So the Japanese and British signed the Anglo-Japanese Alliance of 1902. Now Japan is protected from the interference of foreign powers if they, let's say, go to war with Russia. Needless to say, signing this treaty was especially done to thwart any future triple interventions. So now we have a tense standoff between the Russian and Japanese Empire. Russia has the Trans-Siberian Railway, which in theory meant an endless supply of soldiers could be transported right into the heart of Manchuria and even the Liandong Peninsula. However, it was not complete and fragmented at multiple parts, so in reality, any Russian army would take several months to get there. The Russians also have many more ships than the Japanese, and their Pacific fleet in Vladivostok and Port Arthur represent a real threat to the IGN. Japan tried to negotiate with Russia, offering to respect Russia's claim to Manchuria if Russia respected Japan's claims to Korea. Not too shabby of a deal, might I add. Now hear this, Russia will tell Japan no, and to state their counter-deal is they will do what they like in Manchuria, and might do the same in Korea, also. Why did Russia take this rather aggressive stance, you might ask? It's a crazy story to say the least, but a large part is Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany, who is the cousin of Tsar Nicholas II of Russia, is egging him on intentionally to start a war with Japan. You see, Germany wants to set into motion a series of events that will weaken her enemies and strengthen her, how would this all work out? It's so unbelievably complicated, but since I just so happen to have, yes, my very own episode on what is called the Russo-Japanese War over at the Pacific War Channel, you can go over there and check it out. It will go into much more depth, and it's honestly probably my best episode. I swear that's the last time I will shill. It is over. We can move on now. So to kind of brutally summarize it, France was allies to Russia. They were also financially supporting Russia's development, honestly entirely at this point. If Russia went to war with Japan, it meant France might get dragged into the mess, and France was a rival of Great Britain, who was now allied to Japan. Why cause all this chaos? Well, Germany needed allies. If Russia got into a desperate situation, perhaps Russia would come running to Germany, since both France and Britain needed to remain neutral. How did Germany push Russia to even remotely want war with Japan? A lot of it has to do with personal messages from Wilhelm II to Tsar Nicholas, telling him of the new Yellow Peril. The Yellow Peril being an idea that all of Asia would unite to become an unstoppable force. Wilhelm told Nicholas he was the destined savior of the Christian white world and needed to stop the looming swarm of Asiatics who would conquer all of Europe. Read some of the letters if you ever get the chance. They are quite hilarious. Here is one that I will quote. 
20 to 30 million Chinese, supported by half a dozen Japanese divisions led by competent, intrepid Japanese officers, full of hatred for Christianity. That is the vision of the future that cannot be contemplated without concern, and it is not impossible. On the contrary, it is the realization of the yellow peril which I described a few years ago, and I was ridiculed by the majority of people for my graphic depiction of it. Your devoted friend and cousin, Willie, Admiral of the Atlantic. End of quote from Willie. Honestly, it gets so much crazier. But what ends up happening is, like I said, Russia rejects Japan's negotiation attempts. The Japanese Navy and Army get together to talk to Emperor Meiji and press him to approve a war upon Japan. Meiji approves, as it seems that the Russians will simply not leave Manchuria alone. On February the 8th, three hours before Japan officially declares war on Russia, the IGN make a surprise attack on the Imperial Russian fleet anchored at Port Arthur. If this reminds you of Pearl Harbor, it should. It's very similar in scope and by design. The Russian Navy is blockaded at Port Arthur, unable to leave despite many attempts to try and link up with the smaller fleet over at Vladivostok. This in turn allows the IGA to land in Korea and begin a campaign to take Port Arthur via land. Now this war is a real horror show, sort of a teaser of what will come to be World War I. To give you a taste, here is a quote from Lieutenant Tadayoshi Sakura who fought with General Oku's 2nd IJ Army to take Nanshin Hill at Port Arthur. It is as follows, quote, It is shocking to see dead bodies piled up in this valley or near that rock, dyed with purple blood, their faces blue, their eyelids swollen their hair clotted with blood and dust, their white teeth biting their lips. Everywhere were scattered blood-covered gaiters, pieces of uniform and underwear, caps, and so on. Everywhere were loathsome smells and ghastly sights. End of quote. The siege of Port Arthur cost the Japanese 57,000 casualties, of whom 14,000 were killed. The Russians suffered 31,000 casualties, with at least 6,000 killed. It is an absolute nightmare of a battle. Anyone who knows about this event would most likely concur it is a teaser of many battles to come in 1914. I mean, we're talking trenches, barbed wire, human wave attacks, and a machine gun fire. When the IGA take Port Arthur, they bombard the Russian fleet in the harbor, destroying it, and even taking a ship for themselves. The IGA are not close to done with this war, however. The Russians are trying to send troops over the Trans-Siberian Railway and are amassing forces in a place called Mukden. While the IGA and IRA are going to fight this colossal land battle, the Tsar, who is very hard-pressed, declares he will form a new Pacific fleet using ships in the Baltic Sea and Black Sea. This incredibly large fleet goes all the way over the Cape of Good Hope and the Suez Canal to link up and battle the IGN. It's an incredible journey, and they do it in record time, entering the Indian Ocean. In the meantime, an unbelievably bloody battle occurs in Mukden, which sees the IGAs victorious over the Russians. The entire war, by the way, has been victory after victory for the Japanese, who are always on the offensive, and outnumbered shockingly. The IGA received 78,000 casualties with over 16,000 dead at Mukden, the Russians 88,000 casualties with something like 9,000 dead. And this is before World War I. These are pretty insane numbers. The situation is horrible for the Russians. The Japanese occupy Mukden and effectively control everything south of it. But remember, the Trans-Siberian Railway still exists. The remaining and battered Russian soldiers hunker down, waiting for colossal reinforcements to push the Japanese out of Manchuria. But a world-changing event occurs. The Russian fleet that came all the way across the Atlantic and Mediterranean seas has reached Japanese waters. The Admiral Zinovy Rotsetvensky decides to try and slip through a place known as the Tushima Strait to hunt down the IGN and destroy them once and for all. The only problem is Admiral Hirochiro Togo, commanding the IGN fleet, is waiting for him. What occurs is what can only be described as one of the greatest naval battles in all history. The Russian Navy, consisting of 11 battleships, 9 cruisers, and 9 destroyers is intercepted by the IGN, which consists of 5 battleships, 23 cruisers, 
20 destroyers and something like 16 torpedo boats. The Russians have a major problem. The grand journey they made across the world to get here? Well, they never had proper time to maintain their ships. Because of this, most of their ships are capable of a maximum of 14 knots in short bursts when pushing the engines. The IGN can sustain 15 knots quite easily. Admiral Togo famously sends a wired message to the Navy minister in Tokyo at 6.34 a.m. on May the 27th, stating, quote, In response to the warning that enemy ships have been sighted, the combined fleet will immediately commence action and attempt to attack and destroy them. Weather today, fine, but high waves. End of quote. The IGN set after the Russians and found them in the strait. At 1.55 p.m., Togo ordered the hoisting of the Z flag, issuing the statement to the entire fleet. Quote, The Empire's fate depends on the results of this battle. Let every man do his utmost duty. End of quote. Both fleets sail parallel to another and start battering another. Then the Japanese do something very dangerous. Togo's flagship, Mikasa, leads the entire fleet's bigger ships to move forward closer to the Russians to cross their T giving the Russians an enormous amount of time to concentrate fire upon her and the ships closest to her. The Russians moving slower start to concentrate fire and batter Mikasa, but she does not buckle. Then at 2.25pm, the IGN managed to cross the T on the Russians and unleash hell upon them. If you're not familiar with crossing the T, by the way, it's when your naval column's broadsides are facing the enemy's front. Thus, the enemy can only fire a few shots from their frontal guns, while the sides of your ships can fire all their guns upon them. A Russian staff officer aboard the flagship Kizyav Zivarov said this of the moment, quote, It seemed impossible even to count the number of projectiles striking us. Shells seemed to be pouring upon us insistently, one after another. The steel plates and superstructure on the upper decks were torn to pieces, and the splinters caused so many casualties. Iron ladders were crumpled up into rings. Guns were literally hurled from their mountings. In addition to this, there was an unusually high temperature and liquid fire flame of the explosion which seemed to spread over everything. I actually watched a steel plate catch fire from a burst. End of quote. Ninety minutes into this battle, the Russian battleship Borodino's magazines received a direct hit from the IGN battleship Fuji, causing her to explode. All of her crew apparently fell with her as smoke went thousands of feet into the air. The Admiral Rosovensky is knocked out by a shell fragment to his skull, and Rear Admiral Nibogatov takes command. The IGN slaughtered the IRN during the crossing of the T moment. The Russians lose more and more ships as the IGN are only suffering light damage. The Russians try to get away, and during the night, as the onslaught continues, the Japanese send in their destroyers and torpedo boats, taking out more and more Russian ships, including two battleships. The Russians eventually are forced to surrender after losing six battleships alongside 15 other smaller warships, with the rest captured. The IGN lose three torpedo boats. You heard that right, only three torpedo boats. On top of this colossal victory, the Japanese have just defeated two entire Russian fleets. Russia was stunned by this outcome. My god, the entire world was shocked by this. This was the first time in modern history a non-white nation had defeated a white nation, let alone one of the great world powers. Although Japan had won both the war over the land and now over the sea, both nations were actually in a terrible situation. Japan was financially broken at this point, and at the verge of bankruptcy. Russia was facing multiple problems on its side. Discontent in Russia was fueled by this unpopular war and created the Russian Revolution of 1905. Up to 300,000 soldiers were stationed inside hotspots in Russia to quell the unrest, and on top of this, Russia was financially as broken as Japan, if not worse. However, Russia still had a trump card. It had never stopped sending hundreds of thousands of soldiers over the Trans-Siberian Railway to rebuff its Manchurian army. Japan knew a prolonged war was not in their favor, and both nations sought a peace agreement. The Japanese approached U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt, one of the few who publicly expressed pro-Japanese sentiment at the beginning of the war. 
In fact, amongst a vast majority who assumed the Russians would win the war, at the offset, Roosevelt was amongst a minority that seemed to think the Japanese might win. Roosevelt, in fact, was enthusiastic about the Japanese victory early on in the war. Prior to the war, Roosevelt recognized Japan as a valid opposition to Russia. He saw Japan standing up to Russia as protecting American interests in Asia. The Russian encroachment into Asia concerned Roosevelt, and he turned more and more towards Japan as the balance against Russian power in Asia. You see, America had great interest in Asia, specifically in China, and Roosevelt, like many others of the day, understood the balance of power theory. Yet, as the war went on, Roosevelt soon realized that the Japanese proved much more powerful than even he could have imagined. Here was a quote from him. Sooner or later, the Japanese will try to bolster up their power by another war. Unfortunately for us, we have what they want most, the Philippines. When it comes, we will win over Japan, but it will be one of the most disastrous conflicts the world has ever seen. End of quote. So when the Japanese asked Roosevelt to help negotiate a peace with Russia, he had his own goals in mind. His major goal in conducting the negotiations was to ensure a balance of power would continue to exist in Asia so that neither the Russians or Japanese could completely dominate it. Roosevelt was keenly aware of the vulnerability of the recently acquired Philippines to a Japanese attack, and his cabinet would later strategize how best to defend against Japanese invasion. Both Japan and Russia agreed to Roosevelt as a mediator, and meetings were held in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Before the negotiations began, Tsar Nicholas told his diplomats to take a hard-line stance that forbade them to agree to any territorial concessions, reparations, or limitations on the Russian military personnel in Asia. A pretty ridiculous stance, to say the least. The Japanese demanded recognition of their claims in Korea, the evacuation of all Russian forces in Manchuria, for Russia to cede its leases in Manchuria and the Liaodong Peninsula to Japan, to turn over the South Manchurian Railway to Japan, to hand over the Sakhalin Islands, and a hell of a lot of reparation payments, to say the least. The Russians and Japanese managed to agree to all the previously mentioned except for any reparation payments whatsoever, and not to give over the Sakhalin Islands. Roosevelt attempted to convince the Japanese that monetary compensation was off the table and that the best in territorial acquisitions would be to keep half of Sakhalin Island. To say the least, it was quite a shitty deal for the technical victor of the war. Then all of a sudden, the Russians notified the Japanese that their forces were arriving in Manchuria and literally began to pack their bags and to leave showing they were willing to continue the war. The Japanese diplomat, under immense pressure, signed off on the treaty in the end. The backlash back at home in Japan was tremendous. Although the war had ended in victory for Japan, the Japanese public was so shocked by the peace terms. The Japanese public had been following each victory of the war with tremendous interest as you can imagine, and when the treaty was announced, the entire population flipped out, believing that Japan had been dealt a great injustice. Riots erupted, and most famously the Hibiya riots occurred. Something like 30,000 people began to protest against the government and America. Japan had to declare martial law and many people were killed by the police. The current cabinet of the Japanese Prime Minister Katsura Taro collapsed as a result. Lacking the territorial gain and monetary reparations, the Japanese believed the major culprit to their plight was in fact the United States and more specifically Theodore Roosevelt, who was labeled the man who stole victory from Japan. Now despite the major backlash, the Empire of Japan had demonstrated to the world stage it was the new Asian regional power. This war shocked the world to its very core, it changed the balance of power in Asia completely. Japan was now on its way to being confirmed as a great power amongst the others. Any chance of colonizing Japan was gone, the Meiji Restoration fulfilled its primary goal. The Empire of Japan was well on its way to not only not being colonized, but was now going to become the colonizer. Poor Korea will feel this for many years to come. But one thing was for sure, Japan's relationship with the United States was shattered here. From this point on, 
Both nations devised plans in case the other attacked. Japan from this point would adopt long-term strategies directed squarely at the United States. If you thought perhaps the Pacific War was simply a random occurrence, let it be known here, the embers that would become the fire of war had just been kindled. Alright, I would like to take this time to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. Hey, and if you're still hungry after that, give my channel over on YouTube, the Pacific War channel, a look. I think I gave numerous examples of episodes you can check out during this podcast. Now that we heard about the Meiji Restoration, it comes time for the Empire of the Rising Sun to take its place amongst the great powers. Join us next time for the rise of the Japanese Empire.